Last week we looked at a process of the prophets seeking to discover and meditate on and enjoy the principles that they were revealed uh, in the midst of their own prophecies and in the midst of each other's prophecies. It is one prophet has written it down that other prophets later uh, studied those writings and, and were benefited from it, and yet they recognized the need to keep asking, keep searching, keep looking, keep studying, and what a great example they are to us to stay in God's word and to study it thoroughly that we might not just know more about God's word, but that we might discover some of the intricacies of it to encourage us that God is faithful. And so when we look at this, and we look at the extent to which this happens, uh, they were looking for when is God going to do these things, and what is God going to do. And I'm going to add another one beyond the scriptures here, which is a dangerous thing, of understanding the why of it. And certainly they understood the need for sin to be resolved that really the blood of bulls and goats was not sufficient to be a permanent solution to sin. They knew that there would arise one. Uh, they had been prophesied of it all the way back to Genesis with the, with the fall of man, and that there would be one who was of the seed of a woman, and that phraseology alone was enough to, uh, for them to recognize something unique was going to be happening. God's going to do something unique, but we don't fully understand how uh, that Moses we go we can go all the way down to Moses and certainly in the Abrahamic covenant uh, we have the declaration of, of that all the nations are going to be blessed through a descendant of Abraham Isaac Jacob and then uh, we get into the period of Moses Moses talks about there's a prophet coming that's going to be much greater than him greater than all the prophets like uh, and we're looking then the prophets start telling about God with us, of virgin births, and of all those things that we are focused on this period of time, they studied that. They asked about those things, even as they prophesied, as we talked last week. They didn't fully understand it all, but they were excited about it, and excited enough to invest themselves in the study of their own prophecies, of others' prophecies, that they might uh, know what was going on. And one of the things that they understood that we talked about last week was that they understood their role and their role wasn't to study these things for their own satisfaction it's not just for myself it is for ministry i want to search these things out i want to ask these questions that i might be able to minister to other people and not just the people that i live around right now that are in my generation in my community uh, not just the ones that are in Babylon or in Judah or in Israel. Uh, no, I want to be able to minister to people who are going to come generations from now. They understood the, the extent of the working of God uh, and, people, and to minister to a people that you didn't really minister to. Now, Daniel did. Daniel had a great Gentile ministry, when you think of it, um, similarly to Joseph and others who ministered largely to foreign kings outside of the nation of Israel, outside of God's chosen people. And we find that they understood that God had a plan that extended beyond Israel, and they prophesied of that. 
but they recognized that they, it was beyond their direct ministry, and yet they still had ministry to them. That while I cannot shake your hand, look you in the eye, I can still minister the grace of God to you by fulfilling my responsibility as a prophet teacher. And so we are benefited from them. And it was revealed to them that they are ministering to others. It's not this generation, but an, another generation, a generation at the end. And uh, one of those is, is Habakkuk, and we talked about that last week as well in Habakkuk chapter 2. This is not for your generation, a later generation. We are that generation. We are benefiting today from their ministry. No, I need to say that differently. We can benefit today from their ministry. And that is the whole point of today's message, is their ministry to you is really only limited by you. And that leads us into the instruction. Having looked at the history of the prophets and of this process of getting our faith strengthened by the study of God's word, we come to the directive for us. So last week was kind of historical. This is what it was. This is what holy men, godly men did this is how they have ministered to us even to this day. Now we find an instruction for us in verse 13. Now we have the directive. Since this is how wonderful a salvation we have, since this is how much others have desired to know and have available to them what you know and have available to you, how should we behave? If angels themselves want to delve into it, uh, certainly we should be interested in it. And verse 13 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest hopefully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Not conform yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am. Am holy, And we're going to stop there. We're not going to get nearly that far. We're not going to really delve into the holiness facet here. That's going to hold out for us for another week, another message. We really want to just focus in on verse 13, but we had to include the context to understand the alternative. So we have an instruction uh, that we have a body of Scripture that has been made available to us. And while we talk about it, especially the New Testament being written in, in, a, in non, not in the classical Greek, but in Koine Greek, and Koine Greek basically means the, the Greek of the marketplace, the one you speak. Uh, classical Greek, we have Homer and the Iliad and other Greek literature, it's written in what's called classical Greek. And really only the educated could, understood it, could read it, could benefit from it. And it was really only for the elite well, Koine Greek is for the masses. It was for everyone to understand. And we can look at that. Well, God wants all men everywhere to have access to his word, to have, to have it in a language and, and a, that they can understand. And we think, well, that's a very simple message then because it's in this, this lower language. Not really slang. It's not slangish. It's just common. And that is that is shared by all of us have access to it. We might think, well, then, it's a simple message. It's simple to understand. 
and, and you're wrong. There are many, many very brilliant people and all the way down to some very uneducated people who have taken up God's word, read the very words, and have misunderstood it, misapplied it. And in fact, Peter is going to reference that at the, toward the end of his books. Uh, he's going to reference that talking about Paul's writing. So Peter is going to tell us about Paul's writing. We're going to be studying that extensively much later. But he says, listen, these people have gone in there and twisted it. So that's nothing new to this generation. It's been going on since the book was written. People have been twisting it. Even if you go into the Old Testament prophets, the generation that received those prophecies didn't get it automatically. It's not just automatic because it's in writing every, and you can read it, that everyone gets it. And so the instruction comes to us, if we really want to benefit by the revelation of God through the scriptures, that we're going to have to gird up the loins of our mind. This is a very interesting phrase. We're going to have to strengthen them. To gird up your loins is about strengthening yourself. And it's about doing a workout in preparation for war or for battle or for uh, competition. It's girding up your loins. It is about getting them strong. It's about the fact that I see that here is something I want, a goal. Here is an event that I want to train for. And so I'm going to gird up my loins. I'm going to strengthen them. I don't want sagginess on my body if I'm going to be engaging in this battle, if I'm going to be engaging in this conflict, if I'm going to be engaging in this competition. I don't want to go out there all saggy. Now, I don't know if that works in sumo wrestling, but um, in most other athletic competitions, you shouldn't really show up all saggy. Your loins, your, 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 the, the core of your body should be strengthened. It should be girded up. It, it's referencing like, a, like a straps and belts that uh, we should have these referring to uh, our sinews and muscles and, and that they should be taunt. And we recognize that, a well-conditioned athlete. Well, this isn't about your body and those muscles. It is about your mind. And we're not just talking about your brain, and there's a distinction between your brain and your mind, but you cannot divorce them very easily. And, and, and we're not talking even semantics. So does it necessary to maintain a healthy brain? Yes, for your mind to work well, you need a healthy brain. That is the, the gray matter, uh, the, the synopsis that are going on, the electrical activity that's going on there, and certainly we need healthy brains, and that can be included in this. So let's talk about a healthy brain. That's the physicality of this. Then we're going to talk about uh, the other part that you have even more control over that we are going to feed our brains, that we are going to care for them, even as we understand the idea of conditioning our natural body, that we understand that a brain needs food, that that food involves uh, what you consume, it involves what you breathe, that needs oxygen, we understand that, I hope. We understand that it also needs that sustenance, and you've, some of you have heard me say this before, one of the key ingredients that your brain needs is cholesterol. It is what it burns. That's the, that's the caloric thing for your brain to work is cholesterol. That's what it's really doing up here is uh, feeding your brain to do its functions. 
Uh, in addition, your brain needs rest. It needs to have times of rest, true rest. Uh, not what you think of as rest probably, but genuine rest. And it needs to be active. And perhaps the activity, we often talk about the restfulness, and that's where our brain is allowed to get not only a good sleep, but just a restfulness sometimes that is while you're still alert, while you're still conscious of allowing it to rest. I like to use certain things for resting. Sometimes it, we, you could talk about, it, well, your brain is all active while you're meditating. Not always. Sometimes, in fact, my family gives me a hard time, oh, dad's thinking again because he's snoring. And I tell him I'm not sleeping, I'm resting my brain. And I love using music for that. I can, music can be very restful to your brain, and so could other things, just pe reading. Reading can be restful for you. There are certain things I read that are restful to me, to my brain. And there are other things that are very engaging for that. And so we understand that in our bodies, that there is aerobic and anaerobic work for our bodies, so there is for our brains. But we also need activity in our brains for it to be healthy. And that requires proper stimuli and engagement, that your brain needs that. It should greatly trouble you of the reports that come out where they hook up and read brain activity, that one of the times your brain is the least active, period. In fact, below normal activity is when you are watching television. Your brain basically shuts down and simply absorbs what it's getting without many of its defenses there. And this is the nature of TV and videos and things like that. That's why these are so dangerous to sit yourself in front of and disengage yourself. And I'm just as guilty of that as others of just sitting down. Now, my children will say, Dad, you never, that's why you talk through the whole Thing. We get frustrated with you talking through our movies because I don't want your brains to go into this numb, deactivated state that can then be infiltrated by whatever somebody else wants it. It's very similar to the hypnotic state where your brain is deactivated. It is what cults want to do. It is what the spiritism wants your brain to do. Deactivate it. And through sleep deprivation, through through drug use, and through repetitive chance to try to put your brain into an inactive status. So we want to keep our brains active and alert. Uh, we also want it to be rested, though, with good things to rest on. And the Bible is replete with information about keeping your minds intact and serving God. And we have too long, for too long, we have made religious experience an emotional thing instead of an intellectual thing. And that is tragic. I don't find anywhere in God's Word that it talks about developing this emotional hype for your spiritual life, but I do find many scriptures that talk about your mind. And so we want to keep a healthy brain, certainly, properly nourished, properly rested, properly activated, strengthened. And I do that in multiple ways. I, I, I do puzzles. You guys know I do puzzles 
of all forms, uh, tactile ones where you actually put puzzles together, uh, ones that deal with word meanings and crossword puzzles and word searches. And, and yes, I even do the Where's Waldo things. You know, they had one of those in the newspaper today for the kids. Um, I have no kids, so I have no excuse not to do it myself. So I went and found all the things that were on the list to find on that picture this morning before church even. So now I have nothing to look forward to this afternoon because I already used their thing, their puzzle. Uh, so I want to keep my brain healthy. But I also recognize that it is the seat, it is, it is a house, it is the mechanism where my mind resides. And so the Bible talks about great the Lord of the loins of our minds, that we are going to strengthen our minds because we have a great endeavor and that is to discover truth of God's word. And it is certainly a spiritual endeavor, but it is also an intellectual endeavor. And these are not adverse to each other. They complement each other. This is how God designed us. Uh, this is how God works, that we have wisdom working in conjunction with truth. And this is what Proverbs tells us. If you want to seek anything, seek wisdom. This is a mental uh, exercise to say I'm going to not sit here and just daydream. I want to engage my mind in that which is uh, godly, that which is profitable, and that's not just about money, uh, but what is beneficial to me and to others, that I want to strengthen it, and this involves education. And so we need to have, to strengthen our mind, we need to educate ourselves, and in the use of our brain. Now, you can use your brain a lot of different ways. Some people use a whole lot of brain power to keep track of all the lies they've told. It takes an enormous amount of brain power to keep track of that. It really does. And I've had, you know, I've, I've seen it, and I've had it in my own life as a child. And to the more lies you tell, you're like, oh, man, who would I tell what to? What stories have I told who and what to? and all the brain power it takes to keep track of that. And some people exert enormous amount of their brain power coming up with lies, keeping track of lies, and trying to worm out of being caught in lies. Uh, what a waste. Just tell the truth in your life. Now you can have all that brain activity ready to go for something useful. Others use their brain activity just to daydream. To sit there and just think of things that and the Bible talks about the imagination as being wicked all the day long. If we just sit around and imagine how things could be, well, what is the difference between imagination and creativity is reality. See, imagination avoids reality. Creativity engages reality. And so I can be creative. I can say, well, here's the resources I have available. Here's what can be done. And I sit down and I try to make something out of that, those resources, and, and build something. Uh, imagination just sits there and dreams about things that will never be, you know, unless you're in a Disney movie. You know, and uh, then, then it can all come become real. You know, all your dreams can come true there. And uh, no, not and why are we using, wasting our mind on the imagination? The Bible says is wicked. That the imagination of men is evil. That rather we are called to creativity. And so there are lots of ways to waste your mind. And so 
The Bible talks about girding it up to engage it in something. That's why the next term is so important, to be sober. Now, this is not a word that the world likes anymore. And don't think of sober means not drunk. Okay, don't, That's not the use of this word. Say, well, I don't get drunk, pastor, so I'm sober all the time. Uh, I'm not really referencing that. I'm talking about being serious-minded. And the world hates that, doesn't it? What does the world want your mind to do? The world wants your mind to drift. They want it to be engaged in entertainment that has no goal but to waste time, really, and to use up time. It's not, maybe it started out, well, we're going to have a moral lesson in the middle of this story. Uh, But really, at this point, to entertain the masses is to simply put them to sleep in terms of their soberness, seriousness of thinking things through. This was not something new that came about just with our modern mechanisms of entertainment because this is what Roman emperors understood. And the most evil Roman emperors made the greatest use of the Colosseum. We're going to give you all three weeks off work and we're going to open up the Colosseum. You guys had come in by the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in some of those Colosseums. And we're going to entertain you. And that's what it was all about. While you were being entertained, they were out there destroying your livelihood, your society, your country with their evil and wickedness. It is no different today. By simple distraction, we, we get people to turn off their minds and they're no longer sober, not serious. And the only things that are worth thinking about are things that are entertaining and fun. That's why we don't like sermons in our pastime. We prefer to have something entertaining and fun that, is, that, that captivates me without engaging it. So the Bible says, be sober. You're going to have to take a serious measures in your life to gird up the loins of your mind. It is not something that just happens on its own. Like the athlete preparing for his competition, you should be taking seriously the matter of who is winning the war of your mind. Where are your thoughts going? Now Philippians tells us, to meditate on a list of things. Uh, It's not an all-inclusive list, but it is a pretty strong list of things. And Paul describes that in Philippians, to meditate on these things. If there's anything worthwhile, you should meditate on these things. What is he inviting you to? Strengthen your mind and be serious. Now, does that mean that strengthening your mind is not enjoyable? It is very enjoyable. I enjoy strengthening my mind. I enjoy building my vocabulary. I enjoy that. Is it always entertaining? No. But we have associated entertainment with enjoyment. And what we get is empty. Entertainment is empty. At the end of the time, what have you accomplished? What has it really done for you? That's entertainment. Enjoyment is fulfilling. One's empty, one's full. One of the evidences that entertainment is empty is that you can binge watch. What does that mean to binge watch? 
Well, in everything else, anything you do binging is bad. Okay, binge eat pizza. Is it good? Is pizza good? Yes. You binge eat it? Bad. Okay? And that's true of anything. You binge anything, and we can say, well, that's out of balance. It's bad. And, but the emptiness, you can't, by the way, it's really hard to binge eat pizza because it's just filling. What do we usually binge eat? Things that aren't filling. That's what we binge ourselves on. And here at entertainment, we binge on it because it's not really filling. So we just keep taking it. So we don't really talk about binging pizza, do we? Because it's filling. But we binge on chocolate. Lots of empty calories, right? Don't binge on entertainment. What we ought to be doing is being sober enough to engage our minds in things of value for enjoyment. And there is joy there. Remember, this is the context where we talk about that our joy may be full is what Jesus Christ wants. Here we talk about greatly rejoicing how in the, in the genuineness of my faith, in the strength of my faith, which is going to lead to my salvation. So my faith is a very important element of my salvation. What a joy it will be in my life to have a strengthened faith. How do I strengthen that faith so I can have this joy? I need to gird up my mind and be sober and engage in what the prophets of old did, and that is to study, to ask, to search the scriptures. It's going to take some work. Yes, it's going to take some effort, concerted effort to study. And no, it's not easy. It's not coasting along. It is not entertainment. It is so much more substantial than entertainment and is so much more rewarding than entertainment and is so much more necessary. And entertainment is just going to lead to ruin. It accomplishes nothing. And God doesn't want that for you. I'm not here to entertain you with my sermons. I'm here to engage your mind to become more Christ-like. And that's why this process is going to lead to holiness, which we're going to talk about next week. But we want to really focus it on the process. Over and over again throughout Scripture, perhaps nowhere more than Philippians has already referenced, we are told to engage our minds. Proverbs tells us that if we want to go after wisdom, that this is the, the height. Even in Ecclesiastes, what, is it, what does it all come down? If everything is vain and worthless, what is it to engage ourselves in the truth of God's word? And so we are called upon again and again not to feel our salvation, but to know it. To know it. That this is the root of joy. This is the substance that helps us to stand fast through the trials to come. Is not how I feel about things, but what I know. Because I know something, I cannot be moved from it. My feelings can fluctuate, and they can fluctuate for a huge number of reasons. Because I haven't eaten recently enough, my blood sugar may be off, my feelings can be all over the place. Uh, it could be off because I haven't gotten a good enough rest for a couple of days. It could be all over the place. It could be because my hormones are out of balance because I just had a baby, or I'm about to have a baby, and, and a lot of you know what that's about right now. Um, because I've had a hard day. Uh, feelings are too transient to trust in. But knowledge, truth, is something I can stand in. 
and I want to train my mind, I want to gird up the loins of my mind to engage in it. And that's a serious endeavor that has incredible benefits that endure an entire lifetime. That once I get a hold of a truth out of God's word and I have delved into it a bit, and not that I could ever find the full depth, the full breadth, or the full height of it, or the full width of it. No, I just have delved into it more than I had before, and the strength that it provides, you say, well, I know this to be true. And it puts everything else in perspective, and now I don't have to go up and down and up and down and up and down with every wind of doctrine. That's the biblical term. Don't be tossed about by every wind of doctrine because uh, you're just flabby. You're just like this, like a, like a blade of, of tall grass just being flipped around because you have no substance. God wants us to have that substance, so we're going to have to take a serious tack to this. We're going to have to recognize that we are training our minds to engage in the uh, search for truth. That is the word used here of the prophets. We want to search for the truth. And that search doesn't mean that everything you read is going to be truth. I'm going to search it out. I want to peel back the layers. I want to get rid of the fluff. I want to get rid of the speculation. And I want to know what is the truth. Now, to engage in that, I need to train my mind, educate my mind. We haven't really delved in, I have more about education here, but I'm not going to get to it. Where I'm going to train my mind into how to understand truth. And this is one of the most frightening things that's missing from your children's education. Is that they're not being trained how to think. That is, we're not trained in how logic works. In just the process of, of breaking out, well, do these things fall in line with each other? Uh, can I rationally break this down? And it's kind of interesting that one of the accusations against Christianity is you are irrational, and I just kind of laugh at them because you will find fewer uh, irrational people than, you, than anywhere in, in scholarly Christianity. We are extraordinarily rational. In fact, sometimes we are too rational because faith calls us. You say, well, faith calls me to believe the unbelievable. Not true. That is not what faith is. It's not believing the unbelievable. Hebrews 11, what is faith? Faith is substance and evidence. This demands an engagement, understanding rules of evidence, rules of what is substantial, what is fluff and what is real, what, and be able to distinguish between them and to be able to know the prioritizing of things. These are all investments that our children need, that you and I need to be well-educated in how to examine and discover truth. I try to help you break down sentences. That's why we don't take things out of context. I want you to know the whole sentence. I want you to know the, the grammar that is there because this is how one of the exercises that we need to understand truth and when someone gives me a phrase out of the middle of a sentence, it's not even a whole verse, uh, even just a verse, and it's not even the whole sentence, and then I see how they abuse and use it, I'm like, the grammar alone demonstrates your error. If you would just learn the grammar, the rules 
of writing. This is all part of the process of girding up the loins of your mind. Otherwise, we're just blown back and forth by whoever comes over and, and takes one phrase, one, even one term out of God's word and blows you over. And it sounds authoritative until you get out your Bible and you read where that one word or one phrase is pulled from and you begin to, well, this doesn't make sense and it, doesn't, and it just doesn't smell right. How do you get such a nose for truth? Well, how do counterfeiters or those that are employed to catch counterfeiters, how does the Treasury Department get their agents to be able to recognize counterfeit money. They know the real money inside out, backwards, upside down. That's how. Not by studying everything every counterfeiter has ever done. No, by knowing the genuine article. Do we know the genuine article so substantially that when something comes along, we go, that ah, doesn't sound right. Oh, if we know the genuine article, <laughs> the counterfeits are easy. And this is what the Bible tells us. They will be easily shown to be what they are. The if you know what genuine preachers should be like from God's word, you can tell the ones that aren't. And that's a big part of the New Testament to say, here's the false teachers, here's what they're like, and here's how you'll know them and have nothing to do with them. Once you identify that, how? By knowing what the genuine article is supposed to be like. What is the, our salvation about? And once we understand our salvation, we understand God's word, these things that come in, no matter how rational they may seem, we can rip them apart, not by irrationality, but by super rationality. <laughs> the rationality of God's word. That this doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense that when I engage somebody, and, and I, we heard this, we were at church last Lord's Day in, in Elyria, Ohio, and, and I'm hearing these things from the pastor, and I'm like, oh. And, but he admitted something in the middle of his sermon. It was incredible. He admitted he didn't understand it. He said, this is true and this is true. They don't agree, but I don't understand that. That's where my faith is wrong. Somewhere there's error. If Jesus only died for the elect, and, he, and whosoever will, and, and, but for the world, something's wrong. Something is wrong. And it's not faith to accept both. One of those is an error. Either Jesus died for the elect only, or he died for the world. That whoever believes in him, that was the text, John 3.16, that whoever believes. And he gets to the whoever, and you say, well, what do you do with the world? Well, the world doesn't mean the world. Everybody just means all kinds of people. You see, you had to manipulate that word to get to this word. Now, this word, you can't even use that word, and he's confused. This is a, this is a pastor in one of our churches. But at least he was willing to tell his congregation, I don't get it.
No, when you know the truth, the rest is easily exposed. And so I'm reading through God's Word and, and reading things like God was. In fact, in Sunday school this morning, we had one great example of that. In my Sunday school class this morning, we were reading the story of Saul. And it said something amazing. Yes, I'm reading to your one-year-olds the story of Saul out of the Bible. And it said something fascinating. Even it, it even made the children's Bible. God was sorry he made Saul king. See, that just proves every Calvinist wrong. How can God be sorry for anything if he's decreed all of it? God was sorry he made Saul king. Hmm. But yet, how can he be sorry for something that he decreed from eternity past that that's his will? You end up with a weird God that has, like, bipolar or something. You see, you know the truth. And everything else is exposed. That's what the truth does. That's what the light does to darkness. It exposes it. And so we are called to know the truth more and more. And the better I know the truth, the stronger I can stand. And that brings us to the third word here. Then we have rest. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. Take it seriously. Get engaged. Operate your mind. Learn how to learn. Learn how to study. Learn how to search. Learn how to think. And yes, that's what many of us enjoyed in our schools in our day. We, we had teachers that taught us to think. Think for yourself. Work it out. And then they would show us where we did wrong if, if we didn't come to the right conclusion. We understood the process. We were not just get the right answer or get the answer that feels good to you. We are going to educate ourselves, we're going to learn all of that, and then we're going to take that, that capacity, we're going to go into God's Word, we're going to search the Scriptures, we're going to ask ourselves, what does this mean? We're going to ask of God, we're going to trust the Holy Spirit, we're going to engage in it, and then, having girded up the loins of our mind, having exercised our minds to such a degree, have, in a sober manner, seriously engaging in it, not flippantly, not haphazardly, but systematically engaging God's word with a sharpened mind in a rested, active, healthy, fed brain, we then come to this wonderful world and rest. Now we can be rested. And this isn't about sleeping. This is about being <laughs> immovable. This is where this rests. I have, the question has been rested. It has been Resolved. It has been planted. It has been settled. I can rest my hope fully upon the grace that has been brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That rest is what Peter's been talking about all through here. He's going to continue this all the way through his writings. That he wants us to stand. He wants us to endure conflict. He wants us to endure persecution. He wants us to endure suffering because we are full rest. You cannot trouble the spirit 
of the man who has rested in the truth of God's word because he has searched carefully the scriptures and has found these things to be so. We have a settledness, a restedness, that the turmoil around us simply doesn't penetrate us anymore because I'm rested. It is a settled matter in me because of the grace of God that he has granted me his Holy Spirit, I have engaged myself in developing a strengthened faith. Remember, it's a relationship. You have your part. God has his part. He is faithful. You need to be faithful. Strengthen your faith. Not by having emotional experience after emotional experience after emotional experience that invites you to not engage your mind. I challenge you to listen to anybody speaking in what is called tongues today, and engage your mind while you do that. Paul says that's foolishness. I'd rather speak five words of understanding than 10,000 words like that. I have sat through messages in other cultures where it is in Haitian Creole, it is in Hindi, it is, and I want to tell you something, it is really, really hard to keep your mind on what's going on when you don't understand a word of it. Those are known languages. What benefit does it have to engaging my mind to discover truth in gibberish, so-called tongues? No. We are called upon to sharpen our minds. Now, can I improve my, my IQ, my intelligence quotient? Uh, a little bit you can. But what God has given you, we are called upon to use. And has some of your past maybe affected that? Certainly, if you have drug use or your parents did while they were pregnant with you, certainly you have some limitations. But it, at, and this is the wonder of truth and of the Holy Spirit, is that where you are weak, he can be strong. And sometimes a child can teach you things about God's truth because it genuinely is simple. even in its complexity. That is, I might not be able to plumb quite the depths of it as somebody else, but the fact of it is enough. It is sufficient. And I can rejoice in that. And I can rest in it. And I'm not talking about just making an excuse not to study. And I've seen a lot of that. I've heard a lot of that in my ministry time. When I was doing a lot of work in my eschatology, my book, and things like that, I had a lot of people tell me, no one will ever know any of this till it's all over. And... They said that like that was an authoritative good position to hold. And I'm like, then why did God give it to us? Why would he tell us all this information if it can't benefit us until it's all over? 
that, again, your concept of God's revelation is errored. It doesn't make sense. If God gave us this for our benefit, it is for our instruction, it is for our, our help, it's helping us to rest fully in his grace till that day, then I need it. And I need it not just, uh, I, I need it fully in my life. I want to in, in, embrace it. I want to grasp it. And if we're this last generation, uh, it would be shameful not to invest ourselves in its study. But yet I was told by many, many mature Christians, godly people, don't bother. Because no one can figure it out. I was told that over and over again by professors in Bible colleges, by ministry leaders, in international ministry leaders, national ministry leaders, pastors, relatives. No one will get it right. We'll have to see what it's like after it's all over. I'm like, you don't need the scriptures after it's all over. You need it before. So you can be rested as the turmoil just comes and slaps you. That you will stand and be impervious to it. Because you know the whole story. God has told us the whole story in his word. So we can be rested, settled, firm, planted, immovable. And this is the pursuit of the prophets of old. This is the pursuit of the early church and one church, particularly the Bereans, that were applauded for that. This is the pursuit of the godly person. I want to be holy, 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 yes. And that is not because I have to go in and see the presence of God and have that uh, experience of Isaiah, but rather I need to get in God's word. And one of the phenomenal things we're going to talk about next week is that uh, as I study this truth, I find out more and more, not only about my salvation, not only about um, what's going on here, but, I, but most importantly, I find out so much more about my God. Now begin to understand who I'm accountable to. I begin to understand what his standards are. I begin to understand what he requires of us, what he desires of us. But in addition to being rested in his grace, I'm also touched and trembling at his holiness. I'm rested here, but I tremble about him. And this is why we are to engage him. And so we look at the alternative. By the, by the way, at the end of verse 17, look, it says, conduct yourselves through this time of your stay here in fear. You say, can I be rested and fearful? Yes. I'm rested in the truth, but I have a certain fearfulness to this God, because the more I get to know him, the more startling he is. Because if he's done this much for me, if he has done so much, if his grace is this big, imagine what the penalty would be for rejecting it. When he has done so much. Imagine the 
the tears that would be shed by believers who show up there and, and took their salvation for granted and, and tooled along and did nothing for Christ when he has done everything for us. Yeah, we should have a certain fearfulness during our stay. While we're here, through our time here, we have a fearfulness, not of the world, not of what <laughs> socialists and communists can do to us, not what, what uh, uh, armies can do to us, not what mobs and thugs can do to us, but we, our fearfulness is about, I have to answer to God one day for how I parented, for what I did on his day, Lord's Day morning, for my speech, for how I grandparented, how, what kind of spouse was I? I have to answer to him. So during my stay here, I'm going to be engaged. But it's all built upon this knowledge. And so we have this tension that I'm settled in his grace. I'm fully confident. I, uh, it is all resolved. It is, it is confirmed and affirmed. And I will not be moved in his truth. And yet there is a certain unsettledness in me when I think about my father in heaven. Because as much as I delve into the truth, it doesn't resolve the matter that he is holy and I'm not. It only convinces me more and more of how much I owe him. I've studied the matter and I've concluded that I am a great debtor to my God. That I owe my father everything and more. How can I live as a disobedient child to him when he has done so much and sacrificed so much and given me so much? What an ungrateful child I would be. And so we gird up our minds seriously that we might rest firmly planted the alternative here is also listed in verse 14. I'm just going to look at the last statement. It says, Confirming our, conforming ourselves to former lusts, not conforming ourselves yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. We have no right to be ignorant of God's word. None. It is so readily available to you, but I want you to notice that ignorance of the truth always leads to sin. If you're struggling with sin in your life, it's because you've chosen to be ignorant of his word. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid, unable to learn. Ignorant means I choose not to know that. And I can even be ignorant of something I've already learned. I have been taught certain things and I choose not to remember them because <laughs> I don't enjoy them. I choose to be ignorant. Even though I might know some things, I, and, um, I choose to be ignorant about how my truck works because I do not enjoy getting under the hood. So I'd rather just drive up to mechanics and say, I don't know, fix it, than to sit there and engage him on every little thing and... and 
I'd rather be ignorant. But when it comes to God's word, I don't want to be ignorant. I don't want to know something and then ignore it. Because then that's ignorant is ignoring it. You have the truth. You don't have the right to ignore it. But you can. You can ignore it. But you're going to live the consequences of that. The consequence of ignorance is sin. And that is why this is the teaching ministry of the church that is the strengthening of it to settle these matters. And now, whether I feel good or bad today, whether I've gotten a good night's sleep or a bad night's sleep, whether I've eaten recently or not, these things are settled and I will not be moved. Because they aren't tied to my affections, they're tied to my mind. This is our desire. And this is going to be important for Peter for his message of how you're going to endure suffering. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a, a, a truth that can be studied all our days and can fill our minds and can have such an impact and can resolve so many things. Lord, we ache to know you better, but we also weep for so many who are trapped in teachings that are not consistent with your word. Lord, help us to be exceptional students of your word. That we might have it settled in our hearts and our lives. That we can engage these days with a sure confidence of your revelation one day of your coming. And Lord, we do recognize who you are. Maybe not as much as we should, but we have an understanding that you are a holy God who has graced us to such a degree that we can't really fathom it. And so Lord, we pray that we might be thankful children doing our duty of obeying a loving, generous, but firm and strong Father. Help us by your Spirit and your people and your Word this week as we engage our world. We might do so as you want us to. Resting in our salvation and walking in the fear of the Lord. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.